0: Thank you, welcome to the Film Fan Club Show, the season finale of the Film Fan Club Show. I'm Sam Carrico, yeah, I know what you're thinking, wow, you're finished already? But don't worry, I'm used to hearing that. Uh, No, but we've got a lot to talk about for the season finale. Did you guys see this? John Cena, the Fast and Furious 9 actor, John Cena, he was in a bit of hot water recently. He in an interview, he uh, referred to Taiwan as a country and then he later had to apologize because uh, unfortunately China saw him. Not only that, but uh, Death on the Nile, the new Army Hammer and Gal Gadot film, it was uh, pushed back to 2022. Yeah, it was pushed back to 2022, this is a a mystery film, in case you didn't know, it's a mystery film sequel to Murder on the Orient Express, so it kind of features a large ensemble, they gotta figure out what happened after one of them puts forth a murder complaint, I always thought that was a really interesting way to put it, a murder complaint, you know, like as if it's just a complaint, it kind of undersells murder, doesn't it? Yeah, it's like you just you casually stroll into your HR department at work and you're like, hey, I need to file a complaint about Mike, and they're like, oh, what do you what what do you do? And you're like he fucking murdered Cheryl in accounting. The movies keep coming though. There's a new action film on the way uh, with uh, Nicholas Cage and Ron Perlman attached to star. It's called The Retirement Plan. Yeah, uh, Cage plays an estranged father who has to come out of the woodwork to save his wife and daughter from Perlman's crime boss character. Yeah. The fact that Nicolas Cage is uh, retired but still estranged from his family got me thinking, you know, like people always say, I retired to spend more time with my family, oh this guy he retired to spend more time with his family, but uh, what if you work in a family business, you know, what do you say when you gotta retire then, you know, oh I'm gonna retire, I gotta spend way less fucking time with my family. But Captain America 4 is moving forward. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but I am super excited for this one. Yeah, Anthony Mackie is coming back to play Captain America. It's picking up right where Falcon the Winter Soldier left off, and apparently Anthony Mackie found out all this in one of the most relatable ways possible. Yeah, he was just scrolling his phone at the grocery store when he found the story online. Yeah, he was just at the grocery store, just like you and me, you know? Man, I hate growing grocery shopping. I always find the same problem whenever I'm going through. I find all these ingredients, you know, that's a good ingredient, all these ingredients, but then nothing to eat. You know, I take it home and I'm just looking at everything, staring at it, and I'm like, I don't want a chore, I want a meal. So anyways, I always end up doing the same thing. I look at all this stuff after I go grocery shopping and I say, you know what? I think I'm gonna order a pizza. Okay, we've got a great show for you lined up. Later on, we're gonna be talking about the new Cruella movie. I am so excited for that. But first, we've got a Mads Mikkelsen double feature. John Lien is back to talk about Another Round and Writers of Justice. Let's get right to it. Joining me now, he is a recovering photojournalist and video editor. John Leon is with us. Hey, John. Hey, everybody. Sam, how you doing? I'm doing well, John, and uh, I wanted to bring you on because we had a uh, Mads Mickelson double feature recently, and uh, you've always kind of had a more analytical eye than me when it comes to films, even ever whenever we're just uh, texting back and forth. And Mads Mikkelsen has been in the news recently, of course, because of all the Oscars buzz surrounding Another Round. So I thought it'd be a perfect time to revisit that film and also take a look at the new movie, Riders of Justice, uh, the Danish film that just had its its, uh, theatrical release here in the United States. So kind of what was your thoughts going into these two movies and then kind of how did they uh, measure up to what you expected? You know, Riders of Justice looked...
1: Like from the trailer and everything, and from the description, it sounded like it was mostly just gonna be a revenge porn, like a Punisher or a Kill Bill. And, you know, I used to like those a lot when I was younger, but I've gotten tired of them as I've continued to watch movies and especially violent movies. Um, They get a little bit repetitive. uh, And so I kind of thought I was gonna like Another Round more. Just because Another Round sounded more interesting, it sounded like it had more of like an introspective take on whatever the topic was. Uh, but I found myself surprisingly entertained by Writers of Justice, and I thought the like social commentary and its take on uh, how trauma affects the individual and how violence affects that trauma and all that stuff, I thought it was pretty good.
0: Yeah, we should mention that Riders of Justice if for those who aren't aware of the plot, Mads Mikkelsen plays a uh, military officer whose uh, wife is killed as a result of I believe gang violence in Denmark, so he kind of puts his skills to the test as after some people approach him and think they kind of are able to uncover why his wife died, so he goes on a vendetta to kill Uh, the people responsible. And then Another Round is about a group of teachers that are kind of putting to the test a theory that life is just inherently better whenever you're drinking all the time. Um, You mentioned kind of the characterization and uh, Writers of Justice's approach to uh, trauma. Uh, What did you make of Mads Mikkelsen's character, his soldier character in that
2: movie?
1: I mean, it was very... uh, So I'm a vet, and Mads Mikkelsen seemed like a very accurate portrayal of the way that being a soldier sort of shapes the way that you approach and take in the world around you you know it's very expect the worst hope for the best sort of thing um and he you know he like he doesn't he's uh sergeant or something he's clearly in charge when he's in afghanistan or iraq or wherever it is he is uh because he's leading the troops that he's on a patrol with when he comes back from patrol Uh, and so he's when he gets back home and his daughter is suffering and going through grief and stuff and he's like no there is no god Uh, you know you can't nothing matters basically he's sort of nihilistic because that's how you cope with trauma of being in the military and then as a commander in the military you can't take sass when somebody questions you or when somebody disagrees with you because then it throws your whole discipline and you know command chain into disarray and so then he takes that to his daughter so she's like oh we should we should get psychological help and he's like no we're not doing that even though we both clearly need it i'm not even gonna let you do it daughter uh because i'm not emotionally available to that, even as far as letting you get help. Uh, so it, I mean, it was super on point as far as I'm concerned, but it was also difficult to watch because it is so painful to watch a father be that way to his daughter. <laughs> uh, yeah. But the, I, so halfway through the movie, I was worried that I wasn't going to like it because I was worried it wasn't going to do anything about that. But then as the movie progresses and it becomes more consciously the point of the movie being how people deal with trauma and get over it and get healthier.
0: There's a clear moment whenever I think Mads uh, destroys that entire room where you realize it hasn't even hit him to that point that his, uh, his wife has actually died, you know, and it finally hit him in that scene because he's just kind of going through the motions of what I imagine that character with, you know, the military-natured-minded uh, character uh, is like thinking to do. Okay, well, she's dead. What the mission is, blah, blah, blah. You know, I gotta take out these bad guys. But then he finally had a human moment where he's like, holy shit, my wife is dead.
1: In that scene specifically, he's trashing the bathroom because he's, you know, realized that the shit that he's been doing has been for nothing Um, and he's trashing the bathroom and he's you know at the end he's like laying on the floor of the bathroom and one of the other guys comes to like comfort him and the only thing he says is I'm scared and I was like okay that's that's awesome because that's like the entirety of his character is rejecting the possibility that he's scared or vulnerable or emotional at all. And so then to have him admit I'm scared as he's like bleeding from his hands and head to the character who had previously been like, you know, maybe you could get some help. And, you know, you know, when people are suffering, they need trauma, they need trauma aid and counseling and that sort of stuff. And it was a very good catharsis for that as a as a character point and as a message point for the movie. Um, I like that the other characters that are helping him are all like data nerds. And so they're the opposite. There's None of them are physical. None of them are intimidating. They're all kind of incompetent socially, but they are also suffering from their own trauma from their life. And you get an in-depth glimpse of their traumas and how they've been trying to deal with it and how that shaped them, them and how it's made them more capable of dealing with the pain that he and his daughter are going through than even he is.
0: Is this a turning point as a portrayal of masculinity in cinema, or does it have to do with this being a foreign film and having that type of perspective in there? What do you make of that?
1: Uh, I mean, I think that foreign films have a lot more room to examine those sort of points. I mean, you know, American cinema has Uh, an audience that they're trying to get, right? And they know what makes money and they know what's popular. So American cinema will make a hundred million different superhero movies that are all vaguely the same, regardless of whether or not you think that they're entertaining or not. Um, Whereas foreign cinema kind of gets to be a little bit more vulnerable and sort of in-depth psychologically
0: this and another round were some of the most are two of the most highest grossing films in Denmark and obviously Writers of Justice I mean it has a lot of the hallmarks of an action blockbuster so I, I, I just am very I was very surprised by the characterization for these people in, in a movie like this, you know, a movie that's just kind of an action romp. Mads Mikkelsen usually doesn't miss and that's really further cemented, at least in my opinion, by Another Round because I, I saw this movie after the Oscars and I, I really, I thought it was really good. I, I, I know that we have a little bit differing opinions there. What was your uh, take on this film?
1: I mean, it's a fantastic movie. It's super well done. Uh, the shots are fantastic. the way that they use alcohol in the movie is really interesting. Um, but it as I was watching it without a whole bunch of information about it going into it, it seemed like the point was overconsumption of alcohol is bad and the way that society encourages basically all members of society to drink just all the time is bad that's what i thought it was gonna be right because they like you know they drink a little bit and they get more socially opened up they get loosey-goosey they start teaching better and then they drink a lot more and as they drink a lot more the consequences become worse and worse their relationships fall apart one of them fucking dies uh and then and in the end they go to his funeral and it's the the exams are over and the students are all happy and they're all drinking. And Mads Mikkelsen gets a text from his wife. That's like, you know, I want to keep trying to work on our relationship and he's happy. And then they go back to drinking the same way they were before they started the experiment, which is a considerable amount. And the shops like make a point of showing how much they're drinking. Um, But then at the end, Mads Mikkelsen is happier and he's more free and he's joyous about the situation that he's in. And so it's an upbeat ending. But to me, having gone through the whole thing being like, the point is that drinking is not super great and the societal perspective on drinking isn't super great. Having the alcohol continue to be a primary part of Mads Mikkelsen's character's celebration at the end Seemed to sort of step back from the conclusion that I was thought it had all been leading up to.
0: My take on the uh, the the whole, I guess, theme of the film is kind of in an abstract way, giving in. You probably said this already more succinctly, but giving in to the random nature of life and how, and that's kind of exemplified by the the his friend dies but also he gets a second shot at his relationship on the same day and then he then he drinks and that's kind of the losing control kind of aspect. And then the director, I think, made a great point about what the way that he was dancing in the scene, there was supposed to be kind of a to and fro to it, to where it is kind of, a kind of visually, uh, at least to me, uh, like, yeah, he's just kind of swaying with like whatever way, the way that life takes him. But I can I totally, but also I have to add the context that my introduction to the film, even before I saw all the awards recognition at the uh, Oscars this year, uh, was I saw this scene out of context. I was like, look how cool Mads Mickelson is dancing. I just want to see this for 10 hours. I was like, oh, let me see this scene. And it looks like a lot of fun. He's drinking. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Let me see the whole movie. So I knew that this was going to lead to that. So I was like, okay, here's this. So I was expecting it. Whereas you, you're just following the whole film and you're like, okay. The message here is clearly don't drink. Okay, don't drink. Oh, you're, he's really drunk and he's happy. Well, maybe that's not the message.
1: So, I mean, I like I expected this, this the movie to end on him dancing because they do a bunch of parts as the movie goes on where they say, oh, he used to be a great dancer. And they're like, come on, show us your dance moves. And he's like, no, no, I don't want to. Like, even when he's drinking in over the course of the rest of the movie, he doesn't dance. He like maybe does something. I can't remember if he dances. A l- no, he doesn't dance at all, even when they're drinking a shitload in their apartment and everybody else is dancing. Um, so I figured it was going to end on him dancing. But I think what I was expecting was that his, they were going to go to the funeral. He, they were going to go to the dinner at the restaurant. And they, and he, Mads Nicholson was going to be like, I know I don't really feel like drinking. Because he, in, in the beginning, they're eating at the same restaurant. And he's not drinking at all because he's super in control and reserved. And then he starts drinking when he has a little like mental breakdown. And that leads into their whole drinking experiment. And then when he goes, I, I thought that when they went back after the funeral, he was going to go back to not drinking, but still be able to access the the like inner joy that he had, the, the happiness of you know, his wife being like, yeah, let's try it again. Uh, The the camaraderie of being there with his friends. I thought the point was going to be that he was going to access all those things that made him happier without needing alcohol. But then he, they go right back into him continuing to drink because then if he had continued to, if he had done the dancing without drinking, it would have been like He's finally opened up to that part of him, his joy of dancing, his joy it's of life. it's a subversion
0: life. because even throughout the whole film, whenever you think that he's going to drink or he's going to dance because he's drinking, he doesn't. And then when he finally dances, it's because he's not drinking. It's because he is he, actually happy about his life. Exactly. Which he wasn't at the beginning beginning of the film.
1: Right. That's one thing with um, a lot of cinema is like you watch something and the author has an idea of what they're saying but you don't like I wasn't involved in the creation of another round so I wasn't there for all of their thoughts and all of their comments and their discussions. all I can do is interpret what I'm seeing and especially not having watched any context about it beforehand all I get is what I'm seeing and my own interpretation of it. So you know a hundred people can watch the same movie uh, alone and each one can different have a diff- opinions. yeah exactly. <laughs>
0: So I think you going into this, we were texting and I distinctly remember you saying, okay, let's, we'll do, we'll watch both of these movies. Sounds fun. I imagine in another round will be the better one. So I'll save that for last. But first we'll watch Writers of Justice. So what is your final verdict on these two movies? And of course, if one person can only watch uh, one of these movies, what would you recommend?
1: just from the the one time that I watched each movie I think I liked Writers of Justice more because I liked how intentional it was uh examining pain and trauma and how people cope with that. I also liked that it like the the plot of it has a twist that most you know revenge born movies would not have. Like you compare it to Punisher. Punisher is Thomas James Punisher is Uh, you killed my wife and my entire family, and I'm just going to slowly eradicate all of you. Uh, Riders of Justice is not that. And it actually throws in an interesting curveball. that like halfway through the movie, I was like, did they just do that? (laughs) Uh, So I think that I liked it a lot, but if I'm suggesting that you can only watch one of them and you have to pick one, that depends entirely upon your ability to consume violence because Riders of Justice is really violent and pretty fucked up, um, and Another Round is
0: not. John Lian, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a blast.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Sam.
0: Okay, let's meet our panel, and I am so excited about our topic today. First, he is a struggling actor based in Los Angeles, California. Peyton Gru- Grufik is with us. Hey, Peyton. Shh
2: how you doing that's me can you say my name correctly though i was gonna
0: i was gonna cat i was gonna cover it up with some uh b-roll and just fix it in post but now Mm -hmm. i can't so that's fine we'll just call me out okay uh ricky saucedo is a struggling he wanted me to include that filmmaker based in tulsa oklahoma he's also here hey ricky hey how you doing I'm doing quite well, actually, because you and I saw this together. Peyton, you also saw this today. We're talking about the Cruella movie. It's been ever since I saw the trailer, it was going to be Joker is a girl boss, basically. And I was so excited for it. It was my first time going back to the theaters since, you know, not counting the Oscars. It was my first time since January. But Peyton, you were telling me a little bit off camera uh, before about your uh, reaction to it. So what did you think of Cruella?
2: Uh, So, we talked a little bit about it before, but I loved the film. I loved it so much, and I went in very skeptical. I went in thinking it was not going to be that great. Uh, And we'll get into it later. There's a twist that happens in the movie that I could have totally done without. I don't know what your all's opinions about it is, but that's where the movie kind of lost me for a second. And I, I... I could end the film with a solid handshake and say, I got a professional relationship with you, movie. I love you.
0: Ricky and I, you, you and I kind of agree that this movie peaked really early and we're gonna get into a little bit of spoilers, but uh, what were your thoughts on the film, Ricky?
3: It's a great comedy film for sure. I, I definitely had a good time. Um, I went in with no expectations. I was a little disappointed, I guess. Um, yeah, it, it peaked very early on with the, um, I guess we'll talk about it when we get into spoilers. But, uh, the funniest thing I've seen all year, um, and then after that, it just, it felt like a very bland movie, and I kept getting distracted by the music, which we, we talked about during the movie. It was just non-stop, uh, soundtrack picks that felt so obvious, like Disney was trying to tell you how to feel, because they, it felt like they, they weren't confident, at least to me, they weren't confident in the material, um, and uh, I, I don't know. It just felt it just felt pretty generic to myself, but I'm, I mean, I still had a fun time.
0: I told you, Ricky, this seems almost like a, a Saturday night live sketch, you know, like about how crazy the yeah. Disney live action adaptations are going. Like oh, what if Cruella Deville was a drama, you know, cut to Emma Stone in that ridiculous wig, you know with her makeup smeared, she's crying. And like you, and we also mentioned the music. And something that's always said about movies is uh, show, don't tell. And throughout this film, you kind of hinted at it. It seems like the soundtrack is con- constantly just telling you how you're supposed to feel because the script isn't good enough to do that. And it has a little bit of the suicide squad effect where literally every five seconds, a new, sa- a new uh, song is starting. And it's like, oh, my gosh, it just can't. It like. at least it's not boring, but it's almost like it's afraid that you're not going to be engaged enough in the story. So it just keeps throwing a new song at you. And something I noticed as well was the camera work in this film. It almost made me dizzy at times. It seems like there's not a single scene that doesn't have the camera spinning around the characters. And it can be impressive at times. I thought it was really cool. But other times it just seems like, like it's being overly indulgent. I don't know. Did any of this stuff stand out to you, Peyton?
2: You guys, I am so glad to hear it come from your mouths. The soundtrack (laughs) for this film, I was sitting here going, I'm watching Suicide Squad. I'm like, they are playing a top 100 Billboard song every three minutes in this film. And that is in bold in my notes here. I was like, I'm watching Suicide Squad. And the problem I have with it is when it does play its actual score that was created for the film the original score is so badass for this yes
3: it was so sparse i only noticed the score for like 20 seconds um exactly and it felt like well that little bit just felt like really simple like i don't know garage band loops to me and then and then like right after that like a new you know a song they licensed the right for kicked on so i was like oh okay
0: there were certain points where a dramatic thing would happen. The film would kind of have me, you know, in it, you know, I'd be kind of finding myself getting bought into the story and I'd be like, please don't ruin it with a song. Please don't ruin it with a song. Yeah. I can't remember what exact scene it was, but there was a moment where something really dramatic happened in the music, the actual score came in and it really fit very well. And instead of, again, just instead of being able to go with the film, I'd be, I remember having this like, Oh, thank goodness, you know, kind of, uh, mm. Feeling because it, it just took me out of it. There was the worst offense, was uh, after it. We'll get into spoilers again in a second, but after she's fully embraced the uh, Cruella Deville persona, a uh, sympathy for the devil starts playing. Oh. I, I lost <laughs> my shit because it was just so on the nose. The sound mixing
3: too was a little off. Like, i there's parts like this also kind of goes back a little bit to the music thing, but like where I, I couldn't really, like, the music was too loud and I couldn't hear what, what she was saying. And then also, like, I felt like some shots would linger too long or not enough and that kind of like cut the tension between the two uh, lead
0: actresses. Can we just talk briefly about how at the beginning of the film, the reason she's evil is because the Dalmatians killed her her mom. It was very
2: over the top, in my opinion, just with the cliff flying back (laughs) and she's screaming. I was just kind of like, huh. Okay the film like becomes a slow this.
0: mo it it becomes slow yeah. mo as the dalmatians fly over baby black and white haired cruella <laughs> pushes her mom off of a cliff that is like steeper than the cliff from the first pirates of the caribbean movie when elizabeth <laughs> falls over it's like and then she plunges into the ro- her mom plunges to the rocks below as the baroness oh, like laughs gosh. it's like some of the most ridiculous stuff that i ever see and then these dogs i was i asked ricky in the movie I'm like how old can these dogs be because then it cuts to adult cruella and everybody looks <laughs> the same except for cruella in the future but like the Baroness still has these dogs. And and this is where I talk about her not becoming evil enough because they perfectly set it up that she wants to kill these dogs. And they kind of, as far as, I wouldn't kill dogs. I'm not for killing dogs. But as far as an, a villain origin story though, they completely set it up that she wants to and they can't follow through with it. Ricky, do you wish they had followed through with it?
3: I, I wish they did uh, because it's like, why can't we have a villain story? Why does it have to be an anti-hero? You know, she's not the good guy.
0: They killed her. Yeah, mom.
3: I mean, they killed her mom. Okay, but can we talk... Okay, we did talk more about that scene because it was <laughs> the funniest thing.
0: I literally... I
3: let out a, what? What? And it was hilarious. Really funny. Because it went from whimsical children's movie to...
0: Yeah, it was Just like really bizarre. Sc- it was like Scooby Doo, you know, like she's like running through, like, oh, a little kid, you know, is in the party. She shouldn't be there. Uh oh, the dogs are after her. They're Dalmatians. Uh oh, you know, yeah. and then she trips and they fucking kill her mom. And it's like, oh, they fucking oh my kill gosh. her mom. This is within the first five minutes of the film and it's the Cruella DeVille origin story. So I'm like, okay, that's why she wants to kill animals. I mean, I wouldn't <laughs> agree. Such a paint by the numbers. Uh, okay, let's take Joker's really popular. These other things are really popular and let's, Make a Corella Deville origin story out of it, and this isn't the only twist, of course. And that we're talking about spoilers now. And, and so, what did you guys think of? I even said to you, Ricky, as they as she finally gets the the necklace or whatever. Oh yeah. I'm like, and they hand her, They're beginning to open that that box, and I'm like, I, this is probably going to be a file from Arkham Asylum that says that's not really her mom, and her mom is the other person. And then what the <laughs> hell happens is exactly that like how predictable uh Peyton, did you think see this coming
2: no <laughs> because i thought th- i thought the film was ready we were getting to wrap up i'm like all right they're gonna go it's gonna be one final thing that's where it lost me a little bit i'm not a fan of that twist at all it came out of nowhere for me and i was watching uh somebody else review the movie right after youtube and they said the same thing they were like that twist that's where the film kind of was like, I was like, oh, and you blew it. You blew it. I was staying strong with it. And then you lost me there a little bit. It got me a little more at the end, but not a fan of that twist at all.
0: There's just too many coincidences. Yeah. Cause like, oh yeah, you happen to really like this place. It happens to be run by the woman that killed your mom. It, she happens to have your family heirloom. She happens to be your mom. And I'm like, holy <laughs> crap. How much exactly. more yeah. can be connected in this film? It's all. It almost, dare I say, as much as I love the film, it almost appears a little lazy. The ending with the post credit scene.
2: I, I feel like they had to shoehorn in, remember, this is the 101 Dalmatians universe. See, these are the dogs. But I kind of almost would want
3: to see a, a movie about that more than what we got. And it's like, well, I want a villain who wants to kill dogs. I want to watch 101 Dalmatians.
0: If you're gonna go there, go there with it. And I think that there could have been this interesting kind of dynamic. And like, cause I think the, the puppies that she gave to the, the main characters from the original film were like like offspring of the of the, the Dalmatians that killed her, her mom, right? Is what mm-hmm. I understood. So like, what if like, you know, like it's constantly like up in the air, does she or doesn't she kill, is she gonna kill those Dalmatians? Is she not gonna kill those Dalmatians? And like, what if the movie implies that she does, but then she saves you know, the Dalmatian puppies or something. And so there's like, there's still hope for her yet.
3: I kind of like that idea actually of, yeah, like
2: of her maybe leave it up in the air if she did use those dogs for like her coat that she used. When she looks at the window she's wearing, she has the big concert that she somehow set up and got away with uh, outside of the like palace where the Baroness is. And the Baroness looks out the window and says, she killed my dogs. What if we just never saw the dogs again?
3: yeah exactly i like
2: that and we didn't know it was just up in the air did she do it or did she not do it that would have been very interesting
0: i would have loved it yeah if or even now we're just speculating but even if yeah like it's <laughs> up until the end like okay throughout the film we know that one of the dogs is pregnant and that's kind of a dilemma she wants to kill him at the very beginning as soon as she gets her hands on these dogs she wants to kill him but then she finds out when she gets her hands on him that one's pregnant and then it's like, okay, now she's having this conf- conflict, you know, and she doesn't know if she wants to. And then at the end, she gives away the puppies. And we think, oh, she's such a good person. She didn't kill the dogs. And then if we, if there's some way the camera could go back to like, you know, like something that like implies to the audience, oh, she actually did, you know, or whatever. There's just so much more you could have, could have done with this, I think, than been like, oh, actually, not only is she misunderstood, but she's just flat out like not a villain anymore. It, it felt like it was the yeah. Kind of, And that's kind of sim- symbolic of these live-action Disney movies in general. Is it seems like they're becoming less and less um, uh, daring in what they're trying to do. It seems like they're just kind of taking the easy way out and doing everything that you would expect. And this film really suffered for it because, I, again, Emma Stone is great in this movie. She's having a lot of fun. There is, even though it can be overindulgent at times, I think the camera work in this film is you know, above par for a Disney live action film. I, f- I feel like the director of this film, really in the cinematography, they actually really put in some effort here. The editing and sound mixing definitely leaves a lot to be desired. But I mean, this film, I do think it, it, it's probably worthy of a better script. I don't know, do you guys have any final thoughts?
2: I know I like Trash Talk, the film. It sounds like I just despise the film, but in the end, I just thought it was a lot of fun. I went in with the expectation, like, I was just, I didn't watch any of the trailers, nothing. I I just went, okay, they're making a live-action Cruella, and they are promoting the hell out of it in L.A. I got to say, it's on every bus, every bus stop, every billboard, so I just could not get away from the film. So I was like, okay, I got to watch it, and I would watch it again. I thought it was a lot of fun. I was telling Sam, I I think it was The Devil Wears Prada and Ocean's Eight had a baby. And I like both those films. So <laughs> hey, I recommend it.
3: I would love to watch the version of this movie without the soundtrack. More ambience, more natural sounds. I don't know. Give the actors like be confident in the material, you know? Um, let them let them do the scene without the goddamn music. Um, like I, I don't mind it, every, you know, every now and then, but it's every scene. I'm just, I couldn't help but be taken out of it. Me personally, no, I would not recommend it. And I would not watch it again, just because it, it like, I was like intrigued by it at first. I was like, I saw a trailer just like one time and I was like, yeah, think, okay, maybe. And then I saw it and I was like, you know, this could be good. You know, it's Sam saying it could be like the female Joker. And, uh, and then I saw it and I was like, no, I don't know. It just felt flat <laughs> for me. Um, and yeah there should have been a scene of like one of her cronies like um maybe like maybe during that like mid credits sequence like they're like throwing out like two of the two of the dog's collars or something you yeah. know just to show that that
0: that she could have killed them she probably did she should have been a cruel devil and instead she was just a confused kid and- And finally, when I heard that a new company was taking on the studio behind the James Bond franchise, I at least hoped that it wasn't a company that was run by a literal Bond villain. Yes, it was announced last week that Amazon will be buying MGM Studios for $8.5 billion, its second largest acquisition behind Whole Foods. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer has had a complicated financial history as of late. They filed for bankruptcy in 2010 and were hit particularly hard by the pandemic last year. So when it was announced last week that the big tech giant was looking to buy the studio, many film fans were thrilled. I mean, like I said, MGM makes the James Bond franchise and we all want to see that continue, right? But at what cost? Last March it was discovered that Amazon workers were being forced to work mandatory overtime. Just last week, Amazon was getting dragged on social media for new mental health kiosks. I guess instead of giving the workers better hours or pay, they found it was easier to give them a little box to sit in for a couple minutes as they fight the urge to quit on the spot. Hey, I hear after the MGM merger they're going to start advertising the next James Bond movie on these boxes. It'll be really easy too since they already say no time to die written on them. Okay, but Sam, you say. This has nothing to do with movies. Let's get back to the movies, right? Well, most Hollywood productions are run by unions. Directors Guild, Writers Guild, Teamsters. What is Amazon's history with unions? Last month, after a key vote to unionize Amazon Warehouse Workers was defeated, the company was accused of illegal interference, intimidating employees to vote against the effort. Amazon Studios have already been accused of poor treatment of a California Musicians Union while making the show transparent. How will MGM's existing relationship with Hollywood unions change under this new leadership? What will it mean for the unions that now instead of working with studios, they're just working with divisions of a conglomerate under a different name? Heck, I was going to do a joke about how in a couple years just three companies are going to be making all the movies that we watch, but then I looked up online how many actually are currently, and you know how many? Five! I've mentioned the book Manufacturing Consent on the show before, in it, Noam Chomsky writes, quote, "...large corporate advertisers on television will rarely sponsor programs that engage in serious criticisms of corporate activities, such as the problem of the environmental degradation, the workings of the military-industrial complex, or corporate support of and benefits from third-world tyrannies." End quote. Except now, the large corporate advertisers are directly producing the movies we consume. Why is it that The Jack Ryan Show on Prime is allowed to normalize an all-out war with Venezuela? I'm sure it's just a coincidence that it was made after Amazon signed a $600 million contract with the CIA in 2014. All I'm saying is, I can't wait for the first James Bond movie to be made by MGM under Amazon. It'll be made entirely out of an Amazon warehouse, the director will just be an autonomous camera robot, I'm sure the plot will involve Bond taking down an anarchist communist uh, militia group in Bolivia or something and of course with some help from his friends at the CIA. Okay, that's our show. I'd like to thank John Leon, Ricky Saucedo, Peyton Grufik, everybody who's helped me out on the show this season. It's been a great season guys. I'm Sam Carrico. Thank you so much and I'll see you in the next video.